Hi, my name is Phil Ringrose, and I created this disk mainly to respond to enormous demand to learn about CO2 storage, which I'm receiving many times over these days. Welcome to Seismic Sound Off, exploring the depth and usefulness of geophysics for the scientific community and the public. I'm your host, Andrew Gary. In my favorite conversation on this podcast to date on CO2 storage, Philip Ringrose discusses his upcoming Distinguished Instructor short course and book. Interest in carbon capture and storage is growing rapidly as a crucial part of global efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere. Philip reviews the science and technology underpinning CO2 storage in deep saline aquifer formations using insights from several industrial scale projects. Philip addresses what's needed to achieve climate significant scales of CCS deployment. By building technical confidence in project execution, we may be able to turn the dial and realize the gigaton levels of storage needed over the coming decades. Philip is an excellent guide for understanding CO2 storage, its possibilities and limits, and how to use your geophysical skills to support CO2 projects. You should listen to this episode if you are interested in this topic. To order Philip's book and find his latest touring schedule, visit seg.org slash podcast or check out the episode show notes where you're listening. And on October 5th, Seismic Soundoff will celebrate 200 episodes and we want to hear from you. Visit speakpipe.com slash seismic soundoff to leave a message today and be automatically entered to win a free online subscription to the SEG library, everything except the ebooks, for one year. And now, let's get to my conversation with Philip Ringrose. And as you mentioned there, your distinguished instructor short course is called Storage of Carbon Dioxide in Saline Aquifers, Building Confidence by Forecasting and Monitoring. Why the focus on building confidence for CO2 storage? Right. Good question. And first of all, there's also a focus on saline aquifers, which was intentional because there are many ways of storing CO2. So I wanted to be really specific. I'm just going to look at the case of carbon dioxide storage in saline aquifer formations. And the sort of why focus on building confidence? I think the, the trick here is that I have the fortune to have been involved in many CO2 storage projects over the last 15 years. You could say I'm familiar with how they work. And I hear among the public and, and some experts many suspicious questions about how safe it is, how, what could go wrong. And I can't answer all those questions of what might go wrong. But I think the right way to proceed is to develop confidence by good data, by good monitoring information, you know, spread confidence that actually CO2 storage in deep geological formations is not that hard. It's actually a very safe thing to do. From the climate mitigation point of view, it's one of the safest things we could possibly do because it's not putting CO2 in the atmosphere, it's putting it underground. I, this wasn't a, a question I'd sent you, but you mentioned the saline aquifers being a unique part. Was that just to kind of narrow the topic of this conversation or you think is there something specific or unique about saline aquifers when it comes to storage of CO2? It is certainly the first to narrow the scope to something that I could manage in one day. But it's also, I think, the right scope to focus on. There are a lot of questions about putting the CO2 in old oil fields or old gas reservoirs. That is a legitimate thing to do, but it opens a whole another 
you know, set of questions about processes in hydrocarbon systems. So one reason to stay with saline aquifers is that the physics is relatively straightforward and easy to explain. And the other reason is that I actually think it will be the dominant way our world will get rid of CO2 over the next decades. So that, that's a good lead into this next question. Why, why do you see accelerating this CO2 storage project developments? Why, why is it important right now? Well, you could think of a couple of reasons. Strangely enough, the pandemic, the global pandemic, really stimulated a lot of nations into investing in clean energy and, and green investments. So the interest suddenly grew. And then we've now had in the last two or three years since the pandemic, many, many warning signs about climate change extremely high temperatures in many parts of the world, more frequent storms. The climate impacts are becoming more and more apparent, and the urgency to do something about it is is more and more pressing. So what I have witnessed in the last three years, I would say, is is a rapid, widespread increase in trying to do something about greenhouse gas emissions. And one of the key things we have to do is put captured anthropogenic CO2 from many industrial processes take that captured CO2 and put it in deep geological formations. So what are some common misunderstandings for the CO2 storage that you most frequently hear? Yeah, there are there are plenty. <laughs> I'm sure. One of the sort of most uh, banal ones is that people think CO2 is explosive. You put it underground and it'll somehow come up and explode. Compared to natural gas, you know, CO2 is not explosive. It does not combust. CO2 is actually a very natural part of the uh, earth system, the biological system, the earth carbon cycle. So putting CO2 underground is actually putting it in a place where CO2 normally hangs around. So it shouldn't be seen as a, a strange or unusual thing to do. There are another set of misunderstandings, which in a way are more credible questions to ask uh, about things like, will the injection of CO2 cause fractures or earthquakes? And again, there are some misunderstandings lying in these more technical questions, but they're at the same time reasonable questions to ask. Yeah, navigating those questions, I'm, I'm sure, is, is a big part of, of this conversation right now around CO2 storage. And one of the things I really liked about what your disk page outlines are some great questions that you're going to answer in this course. So I want to ask a couple of those briefly for this audience. First, what are the, the main processes involved in this geologic storage of CO2? Yeah, the thing that one of the things, basically what I start off in the book is trying to explain that there's a physics part of it and a chemical part of it. So when you put CO2 in the subsurface at a depth greater than 800 meters, which is a critical depth, it's in a liquid form. And as a compressed liquid, it's a bit like olive oil as a substance. It spreads into the formation, but it's more buoyant than the native waters. And so it tends to rise to the top of the formation you're injecting it in. And so there's a first sort of set of treatments about how the physics of this low viscosity slightly more buoyant than water fluid interacts with the subsurface. And then there's another set of questions about the geochemistry. Does it, does it dissolve? Does it interact with the rock? And yes, it does. And we try and understand those processes of how CO2 reintroduced into the subsurface binds itself over hundreds to thousands of years with the rock system and the fluid system. Those are the things we start off with. You know, what's the physics and chemistry of putting CO2 in the subsurface? 
another question on that page. What is the, the physical basis for estimates of storage efficiency? Yeah, now that's more like a, a, a geeky top question. The people that have, have been involved with CO2 storage, especially mapping prospective CO2 stores, they use this storage efficiency factor. And there are a lot of debates about what this number is and where it comes from. And what I try and do is to say, well, storage efficiency fundamentally comes from the physics of a low viscosity fluid displacing a high viscosity fluid. So to put it in a really simple way, if you are injecting syrup into a deep rock formation, it's a highly viscous fluid. And as you press it into the formation, it would fill all of the formation because it's a viscous fluid. But CO2 is a low viscosity fluid. So as you press that formation into the fluid, it is a bit like a gas, and it tends to finger out into the formation, which means that its efficiency for filling the total rock volume is quite poor. And some people are surprised that the average efficiency for filling the rock space is only about 5% of the total pore volume, which is the, the holes in the rock. Some people are surprised it could be so low, but the reason it is so low is a fundamental principle in fluid physics. But at the same time, there are ways of improving that efficiency. Is this, you know, when, when we speak to, this is a geophysical podcast and technology and, and geophysics is, is changing rapidly and, and it allows different things to happen. Is this, is CO2 storage an area where that is possibility over the next 10, 15 years how you can store CO2 storage, how efficiently you could store it could change dramatically in that time frame? Yeah, yes and no. I, th I think how efficiently we can do it will not change dramatically, but would change incrementally. But what might change dramatically is our ability to see what's happening. And a, a lot of the course is focused on the geophysics of how you monitor and detect CO2 in the subsurface. And the really neat thing about you know, significant advances in geophysical monitoring is you can use remote sensing of the Earth, i.e. seismic waves, to work out where the CO2 is and to ultimately understand its efficiency. And when you can work out where the CO2 is, you can use other ways of perhaps optimizing the spreading of the, of the CO2 into the formation. So it's kind of coupled with, you know, the geophysical monitoring part and the physical process of fluid physics, you know, if we link those two together, I think we do have potential for some really significant breakthroughs and progress in, in the science of CO2 storage. Yeah, it's a good lead into the, to this question for, so for the subsurface specialists working on CO2 storage, why is this cross-disciplinary learning really important to move this forward? Right. I mean, there's there's a little sort of uh, blurb we did a few uh, a few months ago in in a journal saying that explaining why CO2 storage is not like gas engineering, and one of the things that has happened with enthusiastic people coming from the oil and gas world saying, "Hey, I can do this too," is that they misunderstand some of the significant differences. So we try and explain first of all, gas production is very different from CO2 injection. One is taking fluids out, the other is putting fluids in. But when you look at the physics, CO2 is a very different animal from natural gas or oil. So you have to try and understand that physics in a fresh perspective. So that, that coming back to your question, that's why we need this new refreshed multidisciplinary approach. It's a different animal from oil and gas. It uses some of the same principles like seismic imaging or reservoir physics, but 
it's a different beast. So we need to get our smart minds across many disciplines, petrophysics, geophysics, geology, uh, reservoir engineering, to work together to really understand this new thing in a smart way. Speaking of a, a popular question that you might get asked, what kind of leads you to having confidence that long-term storage of CO2 will be safe? Yeah, that's that's a great lead-in and a good question. The first thing we usually kind of push to is natural analogs. So Mother Nature has been storing CO2 in many parts of our world for millions of years. So at the first point, you want to ask, could it really happen that we can store CO2 safely for hundreds or thousands of years? The first answer, well, look, it's been done by Mother Nature for millions of years, so why not? And the, the Mother Nature process are basically CO2 stores emanating from deep uh, volcanic systems, where the CO2 has come from the mantle of the Earth and made its way up into the uh, the rock system and found sort of traps. So we can we can look at these natural analogs and we can do things like work out how fast the CO2 changes from free phase to dissolved phase and how fast it migrates and how fast, for example, it percolates up fault systems. So that's the first set of questions. We can look at the natural analogs and then. The second question, and this is where we in Norway have a particular advantage, we can look to 25 years of operational experience in Norway and show how real sites have functioned, real engineered sites with, with time-lapse seismic monitoring and, and other monitoring techniques. And we can say, look, it, it works in a real case. So we can use those real engineered cases also to show how the process works and how we quantify that long-term storage effectiveness. Yeah, and you mentioned it earlier with, you know, many parts of this world right now are going through some extreme heat situations. What, so, you know, the CO2 storage is in part to help with, with addressing and mitigating climate change. So what are the advantages of utilizing CO2 storage to achieve net zero targets? Yeah, well, you're into a tricky area here. And I think a lot of your listeners will know that uh, there is opposition to carbon capture and storage because many sort of activists feel it's just a way of giving the fossil fuel industry an excuse for continuing. So it's often labeled as a bad thing. We don't want CCS because we don't want fossil fuels. But that is a, a limited and wrong perspective, I think. As we move to more and more renewable energy sources and non-fossil fuel sources, we, we're doing that as fast as we can. But we will still have to remove emissions from our currently fossil-dependent world. So the real advantage of a CO2 storage project is it gets rid of emissions very fast. And I always make the simple analogy that uh, the, the operating well at the Sleipner project in Norway has been injecting about a million tons of CO2 per year. One million tons of CO2 is a heck of a lot of CO2. It compares to 10% of Norwegian road traffic being disposed of in one well. And it, it is about 4% of total Norwegian emissions domestically. So you, you can really get rid of a lot of CO2 with a CCS project. So the, the real advantage of CCS is it actually decarbonizes our world, whereas switching to renewable energy is ultimately what we want to do in the long term. But in the short term, CCS decarbonizes our current fossil-dependent industrial system. What are a few constraints as of right now for CO2 storage? Yeah, I mean, there are constraints. And the biggest two, if you like, are public resistance and financing. 
So if, if an enthusiastic bunch of developers want to run a CCS project, they'll find A, it doesn't make money, and B, wherever they try and put this project, there's opposition. And it's going to be hard to sort of get around those challenges. But it is more hopeful. In, for example, in Europe, the carbon price has been rising to nearly 100 euros per ton in the last year. So we, we are seeing evidence of the carbon price coming up to a level where CCS projects will be self-economic, but we're not quite there yet. And as you might know, in the USA, the Biden administration has, has through the IRA uh, funding initiative, also plowed a lot of new tax incentives into uh, CCS and related technologies. So there is hope that the economics will be solved quite soon. But currently, the economics is challenging. And in a way, I can't do much about the economics. On the technical side, I think what I can do is build confidence that CCS is a safe thing to do. And that primarily ultimately addresses the public concern part, because we really have to get to the point where you know, our society, our cities, our communities think of carbon capture and storage as a great thing to do, something that they want to do, rather than something they want to push away to not in my backyard, put it somewhere else. So we, we need to change the public discourse around carbon capture and storage. Yeah, I'm sure the economics would probably change too if, if, if public went from being opposed to being actively supportive of, of this type of technology. And you, you know, you've been working in this for 15 years. What has been the biggest change in CCS projects over that time period that you've been working in this area? Well, there is a bit same as. I think in that 15 years, it's been a hard lift all the way. Uh, you know, there have been optimism. There has been optimism at various points in the past, you know, early 2000, 2010 to 2015. And then you get economic turndowns and, and cancellation of projects. So first of all, it's been a rough ride. But as I said at the beginning, in the last two to three years, I really see an upturn not only in the developed world like Europe and North America, but Asia really picking up and saying, we want to be here too. So I think there is hope, reason for optimism right now. We could turn the dial, as, as, as we say, and really start getting multiple CCS projects going to actually reduce emissions in our nations, rather than just talk about Fantasize, you know, fantasizing about possibly coming to renewable energy one day. You know, it's, it's action now that's needed. We need rapid growth in renewable energy, but we also need to decarbonize our existing power and energy systems. Do you find the progress of CCS projects being impacted by the variations in the price of oil? Is there a connection, a relationship between those two? There is, there is. And it, it's unfortunate because you know, there is a dilemma, you know, our society wants to do something about climate change, but at the same time, they want cheap energy. So m many people make the choice to buy cheap gas, or cheap oil, rather than switching to something more expensive and cleaner. And that's a continual frustration. So if the oil price is high, yeah, maybe other technologies will come in. But as soon as it drops, people just go back to their old habits. And the same is true with CCS. CCS projects that have been envisaged in economically, you know, good times, as soon as the bad times come, they just get stopped and canceled. So we really have to move away from this economic cycle and be visionary and say, look, our society, we want clean energy, 
and we're willing to pay some premiums to get that clean energy. And one of the exciting things that's happening recently is that with, with these clean energy projects come ancillary benefits. If you switch your city to electric cars, you not only reduce your CO2 emissions, but you also reduce the pollution due to particulates. So there's multiple benefits. And there was a recent study saying the same thing for carbon capture and storage. If you start capturing the CO2 on your power plant, you also get rid of NOx and SOx and other nasty things. So you start cleaning up your air in more ways than just reducing the CO2. So you know this drive to getting our society to want clean energy and clean power systems and clean industry and low, low emissions transport systems, they, they work together. If only we can want to work together. That's where we want to be. So for this discourse and, and your book, what is a question you hope attendees or book readers will ask themselves after going through this material? Ooh, that's a, that's a maybe tricky one to answer. But uh, I, I would hope, A, they would go away with thinking really positively that CO2 storage is something they could do and they could contribute to. There's actually a lot of enthusiasm in, as I say, petroleum legacy uh, professionals wanting to do something about the problem and wanting to maybe get into the CCS space. And so this course should help those professionals say, okay, now I know how to do it. And I think the other thing is that I hope they will go away thinking, this is not that hard to do. This should be a fairly straightforward activity. We just have to do it with a good focus on technology and safety and assurance. I make the analogy sometimes between you know things like driving a car. We, we want to get to the point where a CCS project is like driving a car. You have safety rules, you have traffic rules, you have emissions limits on your car, but ultimately driving a car is an everyday occurrence. At the moment, CCS is a very rare beast around the world. There's about 40 of them in operation. We need them to be much more proliferate. We want CCS projects everywhere because it's normal. Every little industry will want to get rid of its CO2. That's where we want to be. So what do you see as the key to turning the dial on CO2 storage in the coming decades? Uh, Again, really tricky, but the finance has to start working one way or another. We have to get to the point where carbon capture and storage projects are self-economic. And we have to get to the point where the social resistance is much, much reduced, that there's a desire to have them. And we do have good examples in Norway. We're building a new CCS value chain project in Norway, which will start operation next year. It's called the Northern Lights or Longship Project. And when you look at the communities hosting those projects, which has got several elements, the communities are enthusiastic. They like having those projects in their communities. And that's really where we want to be around the rest of the world, that the communities, states, cities are competing to have their carbon capture and storage project. Yeah, it's, it's great that where you, where you are in Norway, that, that you're able to provide these examples to the world and, and other projects. And I want to end here with a, a general question. What principle teaching or point of view have you found that's helped you succeed in your field? Yeah, I mean, I think it's good to talk and learn from other disciplines, no doubt. You know, you have to stay a bit humble. You never know all the answers. But I would say that it's really helpful to teach students. I'm a professor at the university here, and and every year I teach a course uh, to master's students. And it's always good teaching students because they ask back the questions that you realize you need to answer or you need to address in a better way. So I, I think that engagement with students actually helps me to work out 
how to explain things better. And also I learn from my, you know, technical gurus how you solve a particular problem and then I try and state things in a simple way. And if if somebody criticizes my course for being too simplistic, I think I'll take that as a credit because that's really what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make quite a big, wide, complex subject as straightforward as possible and, and reduce it to a sort of manageable set of principles that people can follow easily. That's my goal anyway. Well, if, if if anyone has ever tried to do that to simplify something, they know how extremely difficult that is. So it is I very difficult. <laughs> yes. Uh, so thank you for your effort in that. Is there anything I should have asked that I I did not? No, I really I think you've been through it all, and it was a, it was a great chat. So I uh, hope you find it a a good intro to the positive news that carbon capture and storage, and particularly CO two storage and sale on aquifers, is a straightforward thing to do. I hope. You reached the end of Seismic Sound Off. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to be the first to know about the next episode, please follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Two of my favorites are Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you have episode ideas, feedback for the show, or want to sponsor a future episode, visit seg.org podcast and find the box titled Contact Seismic Sound Off. Zach Bridges created original music for this show. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary at Treasurement. The SEG podcast team is Jennifer Cobb, Kathy Gamble, and Ali McGinnis. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.